like that new intro music? Yeah, you do. With 2019, we get a new intro song that starts our year, and that song is by a Song of Ice and Fire badass and fan and music enthusiast, the man, the legend, the band, Intermissions. And that song is called Summer Child. It's all about Brand Stark. We will link to it in the show notes. Hope you guys like the new intro. So, hello, and welcome to the Not A Cast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter chapter podcast going through A Song of Ice and Fire one chapter week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brenda Beefish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to our 45th episode of the Nauticast entitled Save the Children, an analysis of the Game of Thrones Editor 12 in which Ned Stark has a fateful meeting with Cersei Lannister in the King's Landing Godswood. This episode, as always, is brought to you by our small council, our Hand of the King, Wolfman Zack, Grand Maester Timothy W., Lord Commander of the Kingsguard Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and Warden of the Waves, Sir Keith J., Master of Whisperers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Jancy O., Lady Commander of the Night's Watch, Archmaester June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, and Ragged Michael, Warden of the North. Thank you all very much. Thank you as always, Counselors, and Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year indeed. Our spoiling, as we talk about in all episodes, we talk about all published books, that is the five novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Sir Thomas H., one of our sworn swords, who asks, Hello, Jeff and Emmett. Hope you guys had a great holiday. I just had a question for the cast about the death of Cersei, and by extension, Jamie, as you guys discussed in your holiday special. It's inevitable that Cersei will die in the Winds of Winter, and it seems clear to me that Jamie will be the one to do it. You are correct, Sir Thomas. There's no other Absolutely acceptable correct. answer. No. My question is, how does Jamie survive after he kills his sister? As it seems likely Robert Strong will be involved to some extent in Cersei's King's Landing plotline, at which point it can be inferred that he will be present with her when she decides to nuke King's Landing with wildfire, leading Jamie to kill her to save the innocence of King's Landing, which would cause the zombie mountain to attack Jamie. <laughs> So it seems unlikely to me that Jamie will best an undead Gregor, and he will go out in a similar fashion to how Brienne did in A Feast for Crows, a no-chance, no-choice moment, if you will, but I don't think he'll be saved like she was. So what do you guys think? Is that a totally bogus and a bad theory, or does that idea hold validity to it? You're asking, like, the, the correct questions here, like, how does Cersei, how does Cersei in the Mountain get separated out so that Jamie has the opportunity to kill Cersei? And I don't really have a good answer right now. I'm sure that's probably part of some of the plot mechanics that Martin is kind of struggling with in terms of like, how do I get like the timelines exactly correct in the Winds of Winter and or Dream of Spring in order to ensure that this occurs in the way it's supposed to occur. It could be that the mountain is already dead. Again, it could be that, you know, that Jamie attacks Cersei and the mountain kills Jamie. And then you have kind of this undead brute out there killing people without a out any leash besides the form of kyber i think there's all sorts of possibilities here i mean there's also like the possibility too that you know i don't think we've talked about yet but there's that idea that cersei will take on the reina queen of the west role and flee king's landing and that the, that the death of cersei lancer will take place in cashley rock as opposed to in king's landing i think i still slightly favor the king's landing uh locale being the place where Jamie will kill Cersei and will prove herself prove himself to be the Valonqar to her. What is Kyburn's role? Is Kyburn still around for this? What will Kyburn do? Will he try to prevent Jamie from killing Cersei? Or will Jamie actually kill Kyburn first? Ultimately, Martin has intends Jamie to kill Cersei, but that's kind of Martin's kind of 
idea that he always has the end states of characters in mind, but he doesn't necessarily have the plot pathways there. He figures them out as he's going through the books. And I don't necessarily see a lot of foreshadowing groundwork to kind of demonstrate what's going to happen between the mountain and Jamie, but I'm sure we'll probably be getting some come the winds of winter before the event actually occurs. I agree completely with what you said about there being multiple possible paths here. This is not one of the storylines like Old Town or Winterfell where to flatter myself, I feel like I have a pretty good handle on where those storylines right. are going, at least in the short term. This is so many options here, especially given what kind of state Jamie and Brienne are in coming out of the Riverlands plot, if they're going to King's Landing specifically to kill Cersei, or if they just stumble upon that. As you say, there are numerous opportunities to get Robert Strong out of the way if Martin feels he has to do that. He can have Robert Strong already dead by the time Jamie shows up. He can have Cersei sending Robert Strong to kill people, and so he's just not there when Jamie yes. steps into the room. I do like the idea of Jamie killing Kyburn. That mirrors what happens with Eris so well with Jamie killing Rossart, the pyromancer, mm-hmm. first, and then going on to kill Eris. I could absolutely see Kyburn playing a similar role here, especially since Jamie already has this pre existing relationship with Kyburn. Yeah. And Jamie is, in a sense, responsible for Cersei and Kyburn ever coming together in the first place. Not that he really had any choice in the matter, but it was <laughs> tending to Jamie that Kyburn arrived in King's Landing, so that would kind of close that loop. So. Well, I agree that Jamie wouldn't have much of a chance against Robert Strong. Martin can always write him out of the way or have Brienne take him down, assuming that Bri- Jamie and Brienne are still sharing a storyline <laughs> at this point. I do like the idea of Cersei fleeing to Casterly Rock. I've talked about that before. That that fits for me in a lot of ways. I think it would be great for the Lannister children to come together and fight in the rock in their home with Tywin's corpse <laughs> yeah. right there. That is very appealing in a number of ways, but <laughs> it might just extend the storylines a little too long. And Cersei as the heiress parallel in King's Landing with the wildfire, as Sir Thomas was talking, is also just really resonant and yeah. lines up well with how she's described in the Feast for Crows. So like you, I probably lean towards that. Yeah, but it's a great question. And it's something we'll, we'll definitely enjoy when we read The Winds of Winter next week, which is, of course, something that is absolutely definitely happening. It's kind of funny. We're recording this like right before the new year. And I've started to see, like, is George going to, like, have a New Year's post this year? We're all, like, kind of, like, there's some parts of the fandom that are kind of holding their breath thinking that that we're going to see something similar to what we saw a few years ago. I don't think it's going to be the case, and you can hold me to that. Make sure you edit this out, Emmett, in post-production. That's staying in. It's <laughs> cool. Yeah, I think Martin kind of gave us already his version of that a little while ago when he was very optimistic about the progression of Winter. Of Win- yes. I feel like that's his New Year's post this year. I'm I'm good with that. I'm and that, that he he hopes to not have to make another one in regards to Winds of Winter. I'll just put it that way. True that. True that. So thank you, Sir Thomas H., for the question. We really appreciate it. And if you guys have not already listened to our Patreon-only episode about the dying of the dragons, it is currently out for all $5 and above patrons. And our next episode on Patreon, available for all $5 and above patrons, will be about the Regency of Aegon Third, And that will be coming to your all's way on January the 31st. So stay tuned for that. Yes, indeed. As we continue working through Fire and Blood Volume 1 and all the delightful stories of intrigue and downfall and terrifying monster worms that lie within. Indeed. 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 But this episode, as we always say, is not our Patreon episode. This episode is about... Uh, should I just stop saying it's like... My, this is one of my favorite chapters of all time. Uh, because this is chapter is one of my favorite chapters of all time. It's a Game of Thrones editor 12. I, I, I really should stop saying it, but I'm not going to. I feel like that's a thing we should just kind of keep going and, and utilizing. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like praising, you know, LeBron James. It's obvious, but it doesn't make it not correct. Like, this is right. this is a Game of Thrones editor 12. This is a heavy hitter by any reasonable standard. It's one of the chapters we've been looking forward to since we started this podcast. It's one of the chapters that make it worthwhile to do a podcast like this. Right. 
there's no superlative that's over the, over the line when it comes to this chapter. All right. <clears throat> so here is the synopsis for Game of Thrones, Editor 12. Lord Eddard Stark is examined by Grand Maester Pycelle, who tells Ned that pain means that his leg is healing. But here, Ned, here's some drugs for you in case the pain gets too intense. You should probably take a nap for a really, really long time. No, 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 no. There's no need to get bothered by the events in the realm. You just need your sleep, good guy. You just need your sleep. Oh, and by the way, Tywin Lannister wrote to Cersei. Yeah, he's pissed about you sending men after Gregor. Let him be wroth. Let him write all the letters to the queen he likes. Lord Beric rides beneath the king's own banner. If Lord Tywin attempts to interfere with the king's justice, he will have Robert to answer to. The only thing his grace enjoys more than hunting is making war on lords who defy him. Pycelle shrinks away from Ned, telling Ned that he'll be back the next day, of course, with more drugs. He then heads out, and Ned is sure that he's off to Cersei to inform on him. Ned now knows that Pycelle is a total Lannister toady, and thinks that Pycelle's telling him about the letter is because the queen told him to do so. He hopes that his angry retort will reach Cersei, but he's really not all that confident about what Robert is going to do about this. A little bit concerning for Ned. But, you know, about those drugs, uh, he's not going to take the drugs right now, but he does want a glass of wine. So he calls for a glass of honeyed wine and thinks about what John Aaron might have done if he were in similar circumstances as he was in. Perhaps John Aaron had tried to act, given what he knew, and had died for it. He thinks back to Sansa's words about Joffrey not being the least bit like that old drunken king, and he knows he has the truth of it. When Sansa was older, Ned would tell her how she helped unravel things. Aww. Yeah, exactly. And now let's let you folks take a moment to be sad. Okay, moment's over. Back to business, you misty-eyed emotion havers. Give them a moment for pity's sake. <laughs> oh, man, I'm, I'm watching Lord of the Rings right now. We're, we're midway through Return of the King. Uh, yes. So I'm right there with you. Ned wonders whether this was the sword that killed John Aaron, and he thinks that this will end up killing Robert in a slower way, which of course is totally not foreshadowing. And then Lord Creepyfinger, the monster, comes to Ned's chambers. You see, he's off to lunch with Lady Tanda, who wants to pawn her daughter Lolly's off on him, so he can't stay for long, thank God. Littlefinger gives Ned a bit more intelligence on the comings and goings of the realm. More sellswords and freeriders are streaming towards Casterly Rock, and Robert is still absent. He was chasing some white heart in the forest, but the wolves got to it first. But Robert had heard about this massive boar somewhere deep in the forest, and he's going to hunt the bejesus out of it. Meanwhile, Joffrey, Surveillance Swan, and 20 other bros from the king's party have returned to the Red Keep. The Hound? Ned asks. Yeah, Sandra Clegane is back. He went straight to Cersei's chambers when he got back, and man, wouldn't it have been totally awesome to see his reaction knowing that Beric was going off to kill his brother? Yeah? No, not really. Gregor was Sanders to kill, so Ned won't get any thanks for the Hound for dispatching men after Gregor. And with that, Littlefinger departs, right? Right. No, of course not. He has to say one last assholeish thing. One last thing. As he leaves, Littlefinger looks at the book that Ned has on his table. The lineages and histories of the great houses of the Seven Kingdoms with descriptions of many high lords and noble ladies and their children. Say that seven times fast. Littlefinger thinks it's a bore of a read, but Ned decides to test Littlefinger. He tells Littlefinger that it was the last book that John Aaron was reading before he got sick. Well, in that case, death must have come as a blessed relief, Littlefinger says like a goddamn asshole. Ned curses to himself and thinks he really can't trust anyone in King's Landing. Good call, Ned. Sure, Littlefinger had been quote-unquote helpful to Ned in finding Robert's bastards, but he'd run off like a fucking coward when Jamie showed up. Meanwhile, Varys knew too much and did too little. Pycelle was becoming more... 
Pycelle was seeming more and more like Cersei's creature day to day, and Barristan was old, rigid, and would probably just tell Ned to do his duty. And time. Time was running short. Robert would be back soon, and Ned would have to tell Robert about everything that had happened since he had been gone. Yikes. Thankfully, though, Sansa and Arya would be sailing in three days, and Ned couldn't use the excuse that their safety was at risk anymore. Besides, he dreamed of Rhaegar's children the night prior, and how Tywin had laid their bodies beneath the Iron Throne. Cleverly, Tywin had used crimson cloaks to wrap the bodies so the blood couldn't be seen easily. But Ned had seen Rhaenys barefoot, dead, and Aegon. It was too hard to even recount what had happened to him, and he would never allow that to happen again. Ned would save the children. Roll credits. But how? Sure, Robert had pardoned rebel lords and people who fought against him during Robert's Rebellion and during the Greyjoy Rebellion, but the betrayal that Cersei committed? No, he will kill them all. Robert had never forgiven Rhaegar, and he would never forgive Cersei. He would do his duty to Robert, to John Aaron, and to his son Bran, who had probably figured out some of the truth and had been subsequently pushed from a window. Later that afternoon, Ned summons Tomard, his portly captain of the guards. He's not so sure about Tomard, given that he's nearly 50 and was really never quite the dude that Jory and Alan were. Maybe Ned shouldn't have been so quick to send his household guard after Gregor? Hmm, yeah. Maybe, Ned. Maybe. Listen to our episode on Ned 11. We talk about that significant depth. Regardless, Ned wants to be taken to the godswood. When he gets there, he has other commands for Tomard. First, the guard needs to be doubled. No one gets in and or out of the Tower of the Hand without Ned's leave. When Tomer protests about having long watches and all the men are tired, Ned says it's really only going to be for a short time, dude. Chill out. And then Ned asks for Tomer to deliver a letter. When Tomer sees the letter, he blinks and starts to protest. But Ned orders him to do as he was bid. Captain Tomer departs. I love saying that. Captain Tom. Captain Tom? Major Tom. Major Tom, whatever. <laughs> Captain Tomer departs, and Ned enjoys the quiet of the godswood. It's peaceful here. Birds sing, crickets chirp, leaves rustle. It's basically a dizzy nature scene, besides that it's a bit artificial given that it's within the walls of the Red Keep. But, you know, his leg doesn't really hurt so much when the godswood with the peace and the quiet until she came to him at sunset as the clouds reddened above the wall and towers. She came alone as he had bid her. And who was this mysterious woman who's come to Ned? Well, let's see. She's dressed simply for once, and she still has a bruise where the king had struck her, so obviously Quaithe. Wow. Forgot she was in book one yet again. <laughs> that I Quaith. keep forgetting, dude. That rascal. Ah, no, but it's not Quaithe. It's Cersei, and she wants to know why Ned summoned her here. So the gods can see, Ned replies. Cersei sits beside Ned, and man, does she look fetching. But that's not why Ned's brought her here. Ned knows the truth that John Aaron died for. What is truth? Pontius Cersei asks. <laughs> is Ned here to take Cersei? Sorry, that was. Uh, is Cersei here to take Ned? Is Ned here to take Cersei prisoner? No, he's not. Ned reaches up to her face. Has he done this before? Yeah, once or twice. Cersei replies, but never on the face, not where it can be seen. If he'd done that, Jamie would have killed him. And then we finally get it. My brother is worth a hundred of your friend. Your brother, Ned said, or your lover. Both, since we were children together. And why not? The Targaryens wed brother to sister for 300 years to keep the bloodlines pure. And Jamie and I are more than brother and sister. We are one person in two bodies. We shared a womb together. He came into this world holding my foot, our old maester said. When he is in me, I feel 
whole. Man, I, I, I kind of wish I could read the entire last third of this chapter because it's mm-hmm. like – really, it's essentially – you had said this in pre-production, but it's essentially like a Shakespearean play where you have just basically two people talking at each other. It's just fantastic. But alas, I have to do summary instead. So Ned asks about Bran and Cersei tells Ned the truth for once. He saw her and Jamie. You love your children, do you not? Well, of course Ned does. And if it was Rob, Sansa, Arya, Bran, and Rickon – and of course, Ned is not forgetting anyone here. What would he do? If it were John's life against Catelyn's kids, what would he do? Ned prays he'll never know. All three are Jamie's, Ned says in non-questioning terms. Yep, all three. Thank the gods. And now Ned brings it home. John Aaron's The Seed is Strong was all about Robert's bastards. And when Ned had looked at that ponderous goddamn book about the lineages of the Seven Kings with that fucked up, awful title, what he found was that any and all pairings between Baratheons and Lannisters had only produced black-haired children. No matter how far back Ned searched in the brittle yellow pages, always he found the gold yielding before the coal. Great line by George. Ned asked how it's been that Cersei didn't have a single child by Robert. Well, Cersei had gotten pregnant by Robert once and had gotten an abortion when that had happened. And she had found ways to sex Robert without sexing me, if you know what I mean. Yeah, you should know what I mean. She did oral enhance these guys, in case you're wondering. Ned feels sick to his stomach, but he asks Cersei what caused her to hate Robert so. Ah, about that. On their wedding night, Robert got stinking fucking drunk. And when he was inside of Cersei, he whispered the name of Lyanna. Oh, man. (laughs) Yeah, I can see why Cersei's a little pissed at that. Just a little. And Ned thinks of pale blue roses and wants to weep. Pause. Jeez, man. I mean, I feel like this chapter, it's, it's wrenching, it's retching. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's great and all, but it's like gut punch reveals, followed immediately by significant pathos, followed by more gun punches and more pathos. It's great, but it's making me feel feelings, and I don't like feeling feelings. Can we, like, move on to, like, some sort of chapter where, you know, there's soldiers fighting and nobody cares about who wins or the other? We'll get to the battle soon, honey. I promise. <sighs> In the meantime, right. we got this boring character drama to work through. I know you can do it. Ah, uh, thanks. I appreciate that. <clears throat> Anyways. Well, Ned pities Cersei and Robert, but he's not sure which one he pities more. And Ned tells Cersei that she knows and Ned tells Cersei that she knows what he must do. Ah, but do you, Ned? Cersei does Cersei things and attempts to seduce Ned, which wow, read the goddamn room, Cersei. Ned refuses her, asking if she made the same. I love this line. Ned asks, refuses her asking if she made the same offer to John Aaron, which then causes Cersei to slap Ned. I shall wear that as a badge of honor, Ned says dryly. Oh, honor? How honorable are you, Ned Stark? You have a bastard of your own. Did you rape some Dornish peasant while her holdfast burned behind her? Was it some sex worker that you got on that you got John on? Ashara Dame? Is that why Ashara threw herself into the sea? For the brother you slew or the child you stole? How are you any different than Robert or Cersei or Jamie, Ned? For a start, I do not kill children. God, I fucking mwah, love Ned. Mwah. Oh, my God. Ah, oh, man. Ugh. And Ned gives her clear instructions. Get the fuck out of Dodge, Cersei, because I'm telling Robert when he gets back. Take your children. Take your awful fucking brothers. Take your father. Take the whole rotten, godless mess of Lannisters with you. Go to the Free Cities or the Summer Islers or the Port of Ivan. Get the fuck out of here, Cersei. You are D-U-N. Done. 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 Exile. A bitter cup to drink from, Cersei says. Yeah, but it ain't as bad as what your father did to Rhaegar's kids, and it's much kinder than you deserve. Believe now. 
Robert's wrath will follow you to the ends of the earth and beyond if needs be. And what of my wrath, Lord Stark? Cersei asked, getting to her feet. You see, in Cersei's mind, Ned made a huge blunder. He could have taken the Iron Throne. He had it in his grasp, but he didn't. He fucked that up so bad. So sad, Ned. So sad. I have made more mistakes than you can possibly imagine, Ned says. But that was not one of them. Oh, no, Cersei corrects. That was a mistake, Ned. When you play the Game of Thrones, you win or you die. Cersei turns from Ned, puts her hood up, and leaves him in the dark and quiet of the godswood as the stars come out. And wow, that is the summary for Game of Thrones, Editor 12. The holy shit of a fucking chapter, man. Like, this chapter is, is like... It's one of my favorite chapters in all of Game of Thrones and all of A Song of Ice and Fire. But really, this one really is, guys. This time, it really is true. I couldn't tell. <laughs> this is the central chapter of A Game of Thrones. As the Stannis-friendly showdown is the center of A Clash of Kings, and the King's Mood is the center of A Feast for Crows. This is the one where the secrets are revealed, where our protagonist takes his brave, dangerous stand, where the title phrase Game of Thrones is finally dropped. I'm going to borrow a phrase here from film critic Eric Hines that this chapter consolidates the full expanse of the project's themes and ideas. All of these plates that have been spinning furiously are stacked neatly before us, right before they're flung against the wall. That's that's really what this chapter is for me, the last breath before everything starts to go completely insane over the next couple Ned chapters and the ramifications of the decisions and revelations here play themselves out. Coming back as a rereader, you can just peek over the cart and see the the first hill of the roller coaster falling away before you. And it's just, it's so exhilarating and so well executed. Yeah. You know, my wife and I were watching Return of the King last night and there's that line that Gandalf says to Pippin, it's the last breath before the great plunge or something like that. It's actually not entirely accurate if I remember correctly, but regardless, yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting that this chapter does is basically, like you said, that roller coaster. And I don't know, writing roller coasters, I've, did when I was a teenager, but I don't do that stuff anymore because I'm hashtag adult. Um, the man has children, folks. He can't I, be spending his time yeah. on whimsy but. machines like you youths. Exactly, exactly. But no, I, I was thinking about that, about how kind of quiet this chapter is and kind of how when you kind of reach the very top of like the roller coaster, it's almost like you like for a second there, it's like quiet before like you just go racing down like the the summit. And I think that's that's intentional on Martin's part that he wants to set this chapter up to be kind of quiet, introspective, and be very conversation-oriented between Cersei and Ned. And that conversation, though, is between two people. It's not set when Robert is brought back, you know, dying from his wounds and suffered from the from the pig where it's chaos in the Red Keep and everybody's trying to, like, get their opinion on to Ned. It's two people talking quietly in the godswood with only the gods as witness, as Ned likes it. And I really think it's a really great way that Martin kind of structures this chapter and that he sets up before we get to the climax of the Game of Thrones, which of course is going to be Ned Stark's death but and his downfall before that. He sets it up so, so well. So I feel like we're right now, exactly like you said, we're at the very top of the summit that we've been building up for 46 chapters and we're just about to go racing down the, down the side. You know the moment in every Roadrunner and Wile E. Coyote cartoon – where the coyote runs off a cliff and there's the moment he realizes he's standing on air and only then he's going to plunge to his <laughs> yeah. death. And like he holds up a sign saying something like yikes to the audience. That's what this is. This, yeah. is, this, is, this is Ned's last moment before he realizes he's standing on complete air. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, like you said, it's a switch to a spotlight moment. This is, it's a very 
intimate, isolated scene. But, of course, before we get to the conversation between Ned and Cersei, yes. we have to check in with the major movements of the plot in the wake of Eddard Eleven. We start with Pycelle informing Ned that Tywin is furious about the men sent after Gregor. And I love that Ned is not naive at all. He knows perfectly well that Pycelle is informing Ned about this because Cersei told him to, because Cersei wants to suss Ned out and see if he's intimidated. And he sends a strong response back, saying he's Robert's going to take down Tywin if Tywin defies him. And that doesn't match, as you say, Ned's inner doubts about Robert, but he knows he has to put up a strong face for Cersei, which is some solid politicking on Ned's part. This does establish, of course, that all of Ned's moves here are built on having Robert at his back. He can only get away with what he's done if, you know, Robert comes back and follows through on it. And, of course, mm-hmm. Robert is going to be on his deathbed in Ned's next chapter. So, again, he is he is walking on air somewhat without knowing it here. But given what Ned knows at this point, his, his moves are legit. And then we yes. have Littlefinger passing on that Sandor has returned to the city with Joffrey, which is a dark omen, as Ned points out. And it's absolutely essential for what comes to pass. Cersei needs Joffrey on hand, a physical mm-hmm. heir she can put on the throne. In order to have any legitimacy she claims after Robert dies and Ned challenges her. And having Sandor around is also important because, as Ned says, he's probably the most dangerous sword that Cersei has. And he appears to lead the attack on the Tower of the Hand once Ned goes down. So it's important for Cersei that that uh, she has Sandor around. And, of course, Littlefinger is, is warning Ned that, yeah, Sandor may have hated Gregor, but he, he wanted to take down Gregor. He wanted that personal catharsis for himself. Having Ned do it yeah. for an unrelated event is not going to make Sandor happy. Do you think that that Sandor's ferocity in the throne room from Edward fourteen and killing Ned's men kind of comes from that underlying psychological motivation that he wanted to kill Gregor, and so he has a personal reason to kill as many of Ned's Ned's men as possible in order to get revenge for Ned taking away the opportunity for Sandor to take to kill Gregor? It's something that kind of came to my mind as I was thinking about this chapter and about being. Littlefinger's idea of being a roach in the rushes, I think, is what he says there about hearing what Sanders' response would be. I do think that's maybe a possibility, but I wanted to get your take on it. I think that's entirely possible. Sandor is kind of possessive about that backstory with Gregor, understandably, and what it's yeah. leading him to do. Like, he, he threatens Sansa's life if she ever tells anyone about it, and so on. He doesn't ever bring it up later when he's talking to Sansa or Arya. He never says that hmm. father of yours who thought he had the right to kill my—you know, he, that, that, that doesn't come up in conversation— Take from that what you will, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if it drove Sandor on and gave him, gave him an edge when he was going up against Ned's men. And in terms of the chapter as a whole, this desire for revenge on Sandor's part links up with Ned's fears for Robert, that Robert is <laughs> going to be going through the same kind of blood fury and just unthinking rage when it comes to Cersei and her children once Ned tells him the truth. And you also have uh, Robert's fury at the wolves, get it, that <laughs> devour his prey first. Get it? Uh-huh. In the King's oh, Wood. Yeah. Like, Ned got to the secret first. He got to the story first, and it's going to make Robert more angry than happy. So I think you see some strong setup there. The wolves, by devouring Robert's prey, kind of ferry him to his doom, because that lets, leads him deeper into the King's Wood to go after the boar, which, which leads to his death. And you, I think you can see Martin setting up a parallel there that however well-intentioned Ned's actions are, he hasn't ultimately managed to save Robert's life. So I think you can see we're reaching the moment foretold by that image we saw in Brand 1 of the, mm. the direwolf and the stag locked together in death. And the, the, the antlers shoved up under the direwolf's throat. Like, that's this is what that scene was leading to. This and this scene and then Robert's bed of blood in Ned's next chapter. We're kind of reaching that moment when the fates of Houses Stark and Baratheon collide together so bloodily. No, I think it's a fantastic catch. And tying Brand 1 to this chapter, I think that Martin very much had that in mind when he was writing those lines about the wolves. 
uh, that Robert Spear at the wolves uh, were, got ahead of him and, and were able to kill the stag. And now he's off to find the pig. And the pig is, of course, going to gore Robert. And, and I, I, again, it's it's like Steve was saying when we were doing Edward 11. If any one of these things didn't happen, if Robert didn't decided to say, you know, fuck that. I'm, I'm not – I'm done hunting. You know, I'm, I'm pissed off at not catching anything. And he got like hightailed it back to King's Landing within, you know, a day of this happening – then it would have been a completely different circumstance that we would have found. Instead, Robert goes hightailing it off after this this boar. And we're, we are going to talk about a lot about this at the end of this podcast, but Ned is doing all of the smart moves here. It's not that Ned is being an idiot. He is the victim of George R. R. Martin pressing his thumb on the scale extremely hard to ensure that his downfall is very much a downfall. And that's going to be animating this chapter, which does feel like a moment where you think like, ah, finally the good guys will prevail, but they're not going to prevail. And that's because Martin is ensuring that the good guys are not going to prevail at this juncture of the story. Exactly. There is that hair's breadth timing where everything has to go exactly as it goes to produce a outcome with Joffrey on the throne and the Lannisters in power. And yeah, Martin does do a good job, I think, with Ned as he will with like Theon and Clash of Kings, where his downfall is partially due to his own decisions and partially due to events out of his control. A Robin, A Storm of Swords is another good example of that, where you can point to mistakes and you can point to things that should have been done differently, but you can also just point to rotten luck and poor timing. Mm-hmm. That if if it had been different, Ned's mistakes wouldn't have mattered, if that makes sense. Like if Robert right. returns immediately from this hunt, you know, right after Ned has this conversation with Cersei, no one would talk about Ned going to Cersei as a mistake. Mm-hmm. Because it, it wouldn't even come into play. So I think we do have to keep that in mind for sure. And yes, this chapter focuses so strongly on Ned's thought process, on his decision-making, on why he's doing what he's doing, what he, what it is he feels he needs to accomplish, and what it is he can't bear to pass. He needed to be able to think, as he says. Mm. You know, Sansa's revelation really crossed the line between innocent and fallen that we've been talking about a lot, because it so defines A Game of Thrones, this first book, the scales falling from your eyes, you know, the disillusionment process. As, as Ned says, the, the ultimate truth came from the mouth of babes, came from an ch- innocent childhood. We didn't really know what they were saying. And that so perfectly kind of knits all those themes together. And I, it's just so central to A Song of Ice and Fire that what Ned is afraid of here is not what his enemies might do to his children. It's what his best friend might do to his enemies' children. Hmm. That's what Ned is worried about. That's the moral dilemma here. And that's just so striking in terms of Ned's ethics and in terms of where Martin wants to focus here is... Ned's duty does seem clear, like alert his beloved king and best friend to the treason that strikes at the very heart of succession. That seems like, yeah, that's what you got to do. That's your job. That's what you, Ned Stark, honorable, moral man should do. And he's hesitating out of horror at the consequences. It's it's not merely that this is a coup against Robert and could result in Robert's death. Ned says it goes deeper than that. Shattered legs may heal in time, but some betrayals fester and poison the soul. This is different, as he says, than Barristan or Balin Greyjoy. Mm-hmm. This, this is something that's going to hollow Robert out and all, all of Robert's previous lines about hating his life and hating his family and hating it. Like This is going to convince him he was so right about that and it's so much worse than he, he ever thought. Yeah, it really makes Ned into a really good character. Like he goes above and beyond the call of duty. The duty for him is, is to inform Robert of what actually is occurring in the realm and that his children are not actually his children. But he is concerned about these children and i think that's that's something that so many people just kind of not maybe bypass or, or they kind of read through it and think that's it's evidence of ned being dumb but 
It's it's really not. It's Ned being a good moral good guy like a noble a legitimately noble character not just in lineage and in having a lord title lordly title but in having the ability to and having the desire to want to save kids and to save them from a death that was certainly becoming from the form of of robert i mean ned has that whole idea in mind that these kids are in danger because robert was willing to send knives after viseras and daenerys who are far away in essos who haven't betrayed him besides bearing a Targaryen name. This betrayal is so, so much worse than simply bearing a Targaryen name. It's the same sort of betrayal that Rhaegar apparently, allegedly did to Robert in taking his beloved from him. Cersei is essentially taking Robert's heirs. Her her children are not his children. And it really is going to impact a, a dude who is, I mean, considers himself to be the manliest, knightliest, warriors, most warrior dude in the world is has been cuckolded by his wife and that's devastating for a guy like robert whose whole whole conception is being the manliest warrior's most fighting list dude that you can imagine on the scene yeah remember robert's wrath at the notion that they would let him win the melee that he can't take part genuinely in the manly athletic contest he loves this yeah. is just so much worse than that it's it, this is the ultimate indignity and unmanning for him and like when Cersei compares it to the Targaryens, it's like, yeah, that's exactly the point. Robert hates the Targaryens. The fact that they're being echoed within his own family like this would only compound it. And so Ned realizes, oh, he would he would kill them all. Yeah, there, there would be no mercy from Robert. All these these children would die. And Ned specifically compares Robert to Eris. He says the realm could not withstand a second Mad King, another dance of blood and vengeance. So. Ned's fear here is that this betrayal and its aftermath will complete the transformation of Robert into Eris. That it will, mm. it will be the final nail in the coffin for the rebellion. It will finalize the rotting process that began with the murder of Rhaegar's children, which Ned brings up here. That it will be the ultimate irony that the guy who rebelled against the Mad King became the Mad King. And, you know, that's there's such great kind of historical resonance with that. You know, you always you always take down the old boss and find yourself becoming the new boss. I think that's that's the core of a lot of great stories and a lot of great history. And that is yeah. realizing that. And of course, under the surface, as with uh, Robert ordering Danny's death, there is Ned's fear for John's life because John, of course, is Rhaegar's hidden heir who would also provoke this rage mm. in Robert. So when Ned thinks to himself, the boy, the boy about Aegon and his, his remains after the Lannister men are done with him. He's definitely thinking about John and what would be left of John after Robert did that to him. Oh, absolutely. I think that John is featuring so strongly in Ned's subconscious here. And you also think too about the political ramifications of Robert killing children and knowing that that was what ended up starting Robert's rebellion ended up being the linchpin of initiating the rebellion when it actually occurred. You could see a similar circumstance of the next generations, Ned and Robert, rising up against Robert and Ned, in this case, for being the people who murdered children, and they would have a rightful cause that the king has become unjust. While that's not featured specifically and outwardly in Ned's thoughts here, his thoughts are much more personal and about based around the de the death of children and the morality of it. There is an underlying political reality that killing children is going to likely, at some point down the road, cause another Robert's Rebellion-esque situation where you can have the realm falling into into death and chaos and civil war again, which of course it already is, 
but this would make the cause of those who are fighting against Roberts much more just in the same way that the death of Rickard and the death of Brandon and Ares' orders to John Aaron to kill Robert and Ned made Robert's rebellion justified morally and made it a just war. Any rebellion against Robert subsequently, subsequent of him killing Joffrey, Marcella, and Tommen would make that a just rebellion against an illegitimate king. Ned is not concerned about the logistics of whether Robert could win this fight. He's not thinking about how are we going to handle Tywin and Jaime. He's thinking about how how can I stop our victory from being this hideous, blood-soaked thing that's just unworthy. And it's not worth winning if we do it like that. And that makes him an exception to the rule. Like, Varus is taken aback when he hears why Ned did this. When he says, what, what madness led you to tell Cersei that you knew about her incest? And Ned says, it was mercy. And Varus goes, ah... <laughs> because that just never would have occurred to him, and it right. never would have occurred to Littlefinger. And much as we love Stannis, it would definitely not occur to Stannis no. on his own. You know, not without Davos telling him to consider it. You have a Stannis essentially saying that the the lives of of Joffrey, Tommen, and Marcella are, are are forfeit as a result of them being bastards born of incest, and that being a treason against the king, sort of thing. That's kind of the underlying motivation that's going in in Stannis's mind. So, yeah, I absolutely agree that it would not occur to Stannis. It's a critique of power politics because. If Ned follows the kind of crude Machiavellianism followed by characters like Tywin and Littlefinger, he shouldn't care about this. He would recognize this as the cost of dealing with Cersei, the cost of doing what he came to King's Landing to do. Remember, he came to King's Landing to root out the Lannisters. He came to King's Landing to find the truth and deal with them. And now he's done it, and now he can't bring himself to follow through in it. He feels heartsick about doing the thing that his whole arc is about. Exactly. Because he can't bear the consequences because the consequences are going to bear this horrible similarity to the worst time in his life. Like, I'm sure he's also thinking about Lyanna, who was certainly mm -hmm. older than Cersei's kids, but still a kid and still just so young. It's like that just, that, that imagery is, has to be flashing behind his eyelids here, and the resonance is too strong. He can't stand the idea that they should trade lives so callously. He can't stand the idea of becoming like the people who ruined his family. He's just He's just not willing to cross that line. And yeah, I think that's part of what makes Ned Stark admirable. We'll talk about the decisions he makes as a result of it a little later in the episode. But th that instinct is is why you love Ned Stark. That is absolutely the reason why we love Ned Stark. And the other reason we love Ned Stark is because he has this conversation with Cersei Lannister, which has so many great Ned Stark lines in it. We saw Ned sitting in a godswood when he first learned of these intertwining conspiracies in King's Landing, when he learned the truth hmm. of John Aaron's death. And now... He's come back. The circle has closed. This is where the truth is laid out. He's followed that conspiracy and, and learned the revelation therein. And Ned wants the security of the godswood, as you were saying. It, it feels almost Disney-ish compared to the, the horror show that is the rest of the Red Keep. And you feel kind of like, you know, the hums of nature and the birds chirping and this, this sense of real contentment and harmony that is so at odds with the turmoil and chaos going in Ned's head that he, he needs this place to give him strength. And he, as he said, he wants his gods to see. Yeah, and you do kind of wonder whether Bran's going to see this in the Winds of Winter, in the Weirwood Cave, because Bran, because Bran has the ability to see through the Weirwoods. And, you know, we do see some kind of flashes of that in the show where Bran is able to see these moments in history. So you do kind of wonder whether this might be a moment of revelation for Bran, because one of the things that is going to animate Bran is that because of the trauma that he experienced in falling from the tower, being pushed from the tower, rather, that he can never quite remember what happened here. You do wonder whether him witnessing the conversation between Cersei and Ned is going to kind of be like, oh, 
Now I completely remember what happened back there. So it's going to be an interesting moment, I think, for Bran and the Winds of Winter. I think that's a strong possibility, especially since Bran has had such difficulty remembering and coming to terms with Jamie tossing him from the window. So if Martin wants to reinstigate that, a great way to do it would be, would be Bran witnessing Cersei confessing that, yes, uh, Jamie and I have a sexual relationship, and yes, we pushed Bran from the window. That could maybe trigger something in Bran that leads him to reopen that issue, which I think could work really well. But yeah, the Godswood is constantly cast as this place of renewal. Bran goes to it for comfort at the end of this book and, and in Clash of Kings. Maester Lewin kind of gets his final moments and his, his mercy there at the end of A Clash of Kings. Theon goes to the Godswood for comfort when he returns to the castle in the Dance with Dragons. Sansa goes there to pray and to feel some comfort and to go where no one can bother her. And that's kind of connected to the politics. The Godswood is kind of mm-hmm. outside politics in a way, because as Littlefinger says, Varys' spies can't come here. There's no place for the little birds to hide, really, which makes this the only place in the Red Keep that you can get away from the spider web. That fits with what Ned is trying to do here, trying to stand outside the, the Game of Thrones and its essential immorality and try to, to make a moral stand. The Godswood fits as the setting for that kind of decision, I think. Yeah, it really does. It's a great setting for Ned because it does speak back to his roots as a follower and believer of the old gods. But I think he made a fantastic point in connecting it to where we first encounter Ned, uh, when Catelyn does rather, with the news that Jon Arryn had died back in, in Catelyn's first chapter in A Game of Thrones. And you do kind of see some of George's process in writing in that he is likely rereading some of his earlier stuff and then connecting this chapter with, of course, Brand 1 and Catelyn 1. And it makes it really resonant and kind of uh, paralleling the two scenes with the godswood uh, here and of course that first chapter catelyn reveals that john aaron is dead and ned opens up his conversation with cersei by saying he knows the truth why john aaron died which of course is very interesting because does he actually know the truth we'll get to that we'll talk about that a little bit later but yeah it's a really fascinating great setting that does that is that george is paralleling between these two chapters and i think it works really really well especially some of the stuff with the sky the sky reddening and stuff like that I love that imagery there. I mm-hmm. think it's very ominous. Uh, it, it's may, Ned Knight might not be reading as ominous, but we should be reading as ominous with the sky reddening, uh, like the color of blood, maybe, perhaps, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, that blood streaked sky he saw in Edward Ten as well. So that's that's definitely a bad sign, especially when he's trying to get away from the the blood red walls of the Red Keep. But it also fits the noir angle to Ned's storyline, where he's a detective in search of the truth and has finally stumbled upon the truth because. There's that line that you know, no man can lie before a heart tree, that the godswood mm. is a place of truth where everything is, is stripped away. And that's a strong theme in this chapter of veils falling away and the truth finally coming out. When, when Cersei arrives, Ned, to his credit, doesn't flinch away from what Robert did to her. He starts with that. He doesn't start yeah. with what she's done. He starts with what Robert has done to her, which is, yeah. again, a very interesting choice on Martin's part. That he's trying to weave this moral ambiguity into this conversation. And you have Ned trying to confront the truth of his best friend. I mean... We've been talking about this through line throughout Ned's chapters of just Ned's crestfallen disillusionment with his best friend and realizing what's happened to Robert and the darkness that was always kind of inside Robert. And we see that in this chapter first, as we said, with him recognizing that Robert would absolutely kill these children that he had thought were his until recently. And then again, when he starts here by talking about Robert beating Cersei and just how that kind of frames the contest between Stark and Lannister here, that as bad as Cersei is and as much as we want Ned to succeed, it's important to have Ned recognize that the king he's ostensibly working on on behalf of here doesn't really have a whole lot of moral authority. 
no. uh, when, when, when compared to the Lannisters. As Cersei will point out, when she when she's trying to critique Ned later in the chapter, she says, how are you better than Robert or Jamie or me? She concludes Robert in the same category mm-hmm. with herself and Jamie. It really is an interesting choice because I think, like you said, Robert does have an inner darkness to him. And Robert was clearly in the wrong and did and has done wrong by Cersei in the past, not just in cheating on her, but in committing physical, emotional, and verbal abuse against his own wife. And I think that's always important to remember as we're talking about Robert Baratheon. Again, so many people, I think, have this idea of Robert in his youth, and they kind of, even though it's we're, we're seeing the Robert as he is right now, we're still left with that imagery of Robert being muscled like a man's fantasy and being able to forgive his enemies after they submit to him and being victorious on the battlefield. But that wasn't that's not the the person who Robert is in this moment in the story. Who Robert is right now is an abusive asshole who would probably kill his own not his own, but the children that he thought were his own if he if he knew the truth of the matter. And yeah, I think that's it's a great point that that you bring up too is like what is is that Ned is framing this from what Robert has done to Cersei first. And I don't think it's tactical on Ned's part necessarily. It's not him trying to put Cersei at ease. I think it's a genuine empathy on Ned's part. And that shines throughout this conversation between him and Cersei. It shines throughout so many of his conversations with people. As, as much as Ned is, makes mistakes and is not perfect, he is a genuinely noble person. And he's noble because he has that inner empathy that so many characters that are playing the Game of Thrones simply don't possess. It's a great point. As, as you were saying, this is not, you know, Ned seizing upon the revelation with glee because he's finally learned the truth and he's going to take down the bad guys who have done this to his, his king and his kingdom. That's not at all the tone here. Ned wants to understand why. He wants yeah. to know why this happened. Why did you do this? How did we come to this moment? And you can see him reaching out with that empathy when he thinks, well, if Cersei's kids were at risk, what would I do if, if my children yeah. were at risk? If What would Catelyn do if it was Jon's life against one of the children of her body? Is his... Is it not as simple as I think about the actions Cersei and Jamie committed? Whether or not you buy that in and of itself, I think is less important <laughs> than Martin setting that up as a dilemma for Ned and Ned having to kind of confront this morass and how learning the truth has not made things less complicated for him. It's made it more complicated. And when Cersei finally can fully confesses, Ned doesn't even think about the political ramifications. He just jumps right to the person. He says, you know, I remember, I remember Robert as he was when you were married. And of course... That's the image of Robert, as you were saying, that so many fans love that Ned loves. This, you know, yeah. this muscled like a maiden's fantasy, like a horned god, beautiful and laughing and perfect. That's what Ned believed in. That's what he was fighting for. That's what he's been trying to recapture in this book and failing. And he's, he's trying to find out how did that collapse? How mm. did we get to this moment when my king and best friend is this fat alcoholic child murderer and you've cuckled at him with your brother? How did we get here? Yeah. And Cersei's response is, what else would it be that Robert was too invested in his own nostalgic fantasy, in his mm-hmm. own glorious image of Lyanna and what could be, and that's what broke the relationship. And that leads to my favorite moment in this chapter, where Ned, when in response to hearing that Robert was just thinking of Lyanna, he thinks of pale blue roses, and he wants to weep, and he says that extraordinary thing, I don't know which of you I pity the more, I don't know which of you I feel more sorry for. Which is an amazing statement because he's talking to the woman who was complicit in throwing his child out a window. And he's comparing her to his best friend and king. And he's saying, I feel that sorry for both of you. That's an an extraordinary statement that, again, really reframes what this conversation and debate is actually about. 
And it's not just about Stark and Baratheon versus Lannister, but the moral decay of an entire generation. Something I've talked before about is how the false spring before the rebellion, those kind of glorious times of the tourney at Harrenhal and, and those months right before the war, that they can be seen as analogous to the summer of love era in American culture for the baby boomer generation. Mm. This, this idealized era of youth and possibility that kind of crumbled and faded and got corrupted. It, that's the youth and nostalgia that everyone in the Robert's Rebellion generation is longing for. You see it with Robert disappointed and despairing that he's gotten too fat for his armor. You see it with Jamie, who's always thinking longingly about the days when he was just the youngest perfect knight before everything fell apart under Eris. Mm. Barbary talking about how happy she was with Brandon before the war interfered with that. John Connington thinking about how happy he could have been with Rhaegar mm. before the war. It's always before the war, before the war, before the war, right. before the death toll. Before we realized what life was like, before the songs and stories broke for us. And what Ned realizes in this moment and what he's been building up to the entire book from that trip to the crypts forward is that this longing has broken his generation. The grand, dramatic, romantic backstory has just destroyed all of their lives. It's made them incapable of dealing with the present, preparing for the future. Again, this is the equivalent to that kind of hippie dream that Martin loves it and believes in and was there for, kind of falling apart over the course of the 70s and 80s for a variety of reasons. And you can just see Ned wondering, how how did we come to this? We were so full of life. We were so full of joy at the tourney at Harrenhal. How are we so full of death now? How did we get here? Man, yeah, I think you said it perfectly. I think it's, that's exactly what's what's at stake and what's going on in Ned's mind. And it's all, it's, it's so tragic because so much of what all of the characters in the, in the story so far are dwelling on, it's that nostalgia that they're just completely consumed by the way that things were. You know, we, we have the idea, we have Cersei telling Ned that the reason why she hated Robert so much was because that the king whispered his dead lover, his dead betrothed's name to in Cersei's ear the first time they were ever having sex. And that's just incredibly haunting and tragic. And, you know, that's – it really is the place where the dream died. I mean, the dream died at Robert's Rebellion. The happy moments that they enjoyed at the tourney of Harrenhal, the moments that they had together growing up, Ned and Robert, even, you know, in a twisted way, the, the kind of relationship that Cersei and Jamie had growing up together as well – are all gone and it's not coming back. And the result is that you have bitter, broken people who, of course, have to try and rule Westeros, a nation of 40 million or so people, as some people have estimated. And you have these broken people at the very top of the pyramid. And that's and the result is that so many people are going to die because of the brokenness that all these characters have. That it's not just a personal brokenness, and although that is very much a huge part of this chapter, it's a brokenness that is going to have significant bad ramifications and outcomes for people who had nothing to do with Robert's Rebellion, who had nothing to do with Cersei's betrayal of Robert and her wedding vows, who had nothing to do with Robert beating his wife and cheating on his wife. But because you have these broken, terrible and awful people at the very top, Lots of people are going to suffer as a result of it. Yeah, that's a great point. It's such weaponized dysfunction that trickles yeah. down to everybody. Like when you skip forward to A Clash of Kings, and obviously Stannis and Renly have very different ideologies and come to it from very different places and backstories, but the fundamental truth is they just cannot stand each other. Yeah. And the fact that they cannot stand each other has these has huge ripple effects and consequences for the course of that war and, and the safety of the realm. And yeah, I think what you were saying there about 
everyone kind of falling apart because of how good their dream was and how they can't recapture it. You could have an alternate title for Game of Thrones just be Paradise Lost. That's just yeah. the, the theme that runs through all these characters. And then you get Cersei's response. And she's, of course, is so cynical at this point, she can't even have that kind of mournful feeling that Ned has about what right. they've lost. She's, she's just, she's gone, basically. And so she makes this kind of cynical play to get Ned on her side by flirting with him. This is, of course, one of several offers that he will refuse over these last couple chapters before he's downfall in the throne room. He'll refuse offers from Renly and Littlefinger as well in his next chapter. And I think with all those offers, while they're all tempting on, again, a shallow, crude Machiavellianism way, none of them are really good options for Ned. And it's no. not, we shouldn't, I don't think we're supposed to read those chapters going, oh, Ned, if only you had taken that offer, because they all kind of have a sting in the tail. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, the fact that Cersei is making this offer at all does reflect, as Varys will say in the Black Cells, that she actually considers Renly and even more so Stannis to be the true dangers, not really Ned. That yeah. Ned Ned's just kind of blundered in on a pre-existing Lannister versus Baratheon showdown. But there's, of all the things that Cersei has planned and wants to have occur over the, the coming conflict, she can't possibly believe Ned's going to be on board with some of that stuff. Like, Robert's no. about to die. She can't imagine that Ned's going to be on board with that. She's going to go after Stannis and Renly. She can't imagine Ned's going to be on board with that. Even stuff like Jamie, like, Cersei's got to think Jamie's coming back at some point, and there's no way Jamie's yeah. going to be cool with her, with her stupping Ned Stark. So I, I got to think this is not in any way a genuine offer on Cersei's part. This is her trying to put Ned off in the moment. And trying to just placate him here. And I, I think as soon as Ned's back was turned, if he agreed to this, she'd shove a knife in there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that sh- it, this is not a, an offer that Ned should take for practical reasons it, beyond the morality piece of it. And and I do think it's 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 also really interesting how everybody looks at Renly and Stannis as the threats. But it's really the Starks who end up being like the legitimate threat to Lannister rule in – at least in the Riverlands and, and Tywin Lannister – Everyone kind of looks at Ned Stark as being uh, basically powerless, as kind of being a, a bit part, as playing a bit part in the in the coming conflict between Renly, Stannis, and the Lannisters. But it's Rob Stark and his northern hosts that really start dealing significant damage to the Lannister cause militarily in the Riverlands. Of course, you know Stannis doesn't play an insignificant role, of course, in trying to take King's Landing. But I, I think like here. Cersei is a little bit underestimating Ned and is focusing on the far threat when Ned is a much more significant close and personal threat. And I do – like I said in my summary, I I don't think that she's reading the room correctly here. She's just admitted to nearly killing Ned's child. She's admitted to sleeping with her brother and burying her brother's children and now she attempts to seduce Ned – it just – it seems – I don't know how much Martin had this planned necessarily and how much of it kind of came organically when he was writing Cersei chapters in Feast for Crows. But it's not necessarily a rational play necessarily. Like if I had told you that I had nearly killed your child and would you like to have sex with me, what, is that going to work like in a normal rational person or is – like Ned, Ned here is being like extraordinarily moral and noble and he's not like – rounding up the kids and waiting for Robert to come and kill them. He's allowing her and their children to get the fuck out of Dodge. But at the same time, he's, it's not like he's going to be like, yeah, let's, let's, let's have sex right now as a result of you 
doing what? Attempting to seduce me after you told me all the after you reveal all these major things to me? No, it's, it's it it doesn't work. And I think we're seeing a bit of Cersei's low cunning here, in that it's not necessarily intricate, planned. It seems very much in the moment, attempting to buy time, but it's also, again, not a rational response to what she's just revealed to Ned. Cersei is a very sloppy improvisational planner. I think we've seen that over the course of this book and will again over the course of the books to come. So yeah, I think this was just her ploying the moment once she realized exactly how much Ned knows and trying to see what, what she can get away with. Because it's not it's not like Cersei is generally irrational about this particular move. I do love the line she says to Sansa during the Blackwater that if it was anyone else laying seeds to us, I might try to seduce him. But this is Stannis out of a better chance with his horse. <laughs> which is just a great line, but also just that shows that Cersei does understand that her wiles don't work on everyone. Yeah. So that that's a good point. It doesn't really come into play here. But what that offer leads to is this great moment in the chapter where all that ethical ambiguity we were talking about and the way Martin reframes Ned and Robert's side is not necessarily just being pure just heroes to the Lannisters' evil comes to a head when Cersei outwardly says to Ned, look, how how dare you judge me? How, how By what right does the wolf judge the lion, basically? Mm. Like, you're not a predator in your own way. Like, you haven't caused damage. Like, John doesn't represent your complicity in acts like this. How are, how are you any better than me? What gives you the right? And ironically, the truth of the situation with John demonstrates that Ned is different because the truth yeah. of the situation with John is that Ned put it all on the line to keep this child safe, demonstrating mm-hmm. that he is not like Cersei and not like Robert, that he does have this commitment to a higher moral cause and he's committed to it even as it caused damage in his personal life and he was forced to keep this secret. And he proves it again in this chapter by offering mercy to her and her children. And he again when he has that great line about proclaiming that it was not a mistake for him to refuse the Iron Throne. I love that. I love when Ned says, look, Cersei, I understand I've screwed up a lot in my life. I understand I'm not some pure moral paragon coming mm-hmm. down from heaven to judge you. But no, it was not a mistake for me to refuse mm-hmm. to walk up and sit that chair. That I did right. That's one of the things I'm proud of that I know was the right thing to do, to, to, to not just seize all that power for myself because I could. And... I love Ned for that in this moment. I recognize how yeah. vulnerable it makes him, but that's that's such a strong moral stand to refuse that power. It's, of course, resonant with Maester Aemon refusing the throne, as we're going to get into a little bit later in this book. And it, it, it's, it's a general thing with Martin where the longing for power, even if it has sympathetic reasons behind it, is cast in a negative light and people refusing power in principle is cast in a positive light. I don't, how can you not love a man who resists easy temptations and stubbornly sticks to doing the right thing? It's the very definition of heroism. It really is. And that's a fantastic way to, to frame Ned here as not necessarily the most the moral righteousness coming to judge Cersei and Robert and Jamie. He's a guy that's made mistakes in his life. But his mistake was not in being power hungry and playing the Game of Thrones. That wasn't a mistake. His mistake was not in going back to Winterfell to be with his family and to be with Catelyn and to take this bastard son of his that he claims to be his bastard up north to Winterfell. Those weren't mistakes. Mistakes, as we're going to talk about, are a little bit more political uh, towards the end of this this podcast. All these things were good on Ned's part, and I think that does definitely frame the coming action between Ned and Cersei at the end of Game of Thrones so, so tragically as Ned is forced to potentially take on to sit the Iron Throne to become the Lord Protector of the Realm. But of course, that's all going to come crashing, crashing down. And that, I think, takes us to our foreshadowing and groundwork portion of this podcast. So RLJ, we got some RLJ stuff in this chapter, didn't we? Yes, indeed. As always, 
we were saying that, you know, the subject of John kind of runs under the surface of Ned's chapters where he's not usually thinking directly about him, but there are resonances and hints that point to his presence in Ned's thoughts and the revelation of R plus O equals J. And that's one of the major ones in this chapter when Cersei brings up, hey, Ned, you love your children. Wouldn't you do anything on behalf of them? And Ned very painstakingly goes through every child of his body and his thoughts. He goes, what would I do if Rob or Sansa or Arya or Bran or Rickon were in danger? Just those five. Just, just those five. five. Just five. Leaving John out of that, interestingly enough. And that's Weird, a right? wonderful, wonderful structure of omission there by Martin where – Again, if you're reading the first time through, if you're just focused on the drama and urgency of this scene between Ned and Cersei, you wouldn't necessarily notice that he leaves a name off that list. But coming back with the knowledge of R plus L equals J, that really stands out that in the privacy of his thoughts, Ned does not list John among the children of his body. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And we also have that next line, though, where he does mention John, where he says, even more so, what would Catelyn do if it were John's life against the children of her body? Uh, this is a bit of a callback to Catelyn 2 from A Game of Thrones, where Catelyn is talking with Eddard and talking about the, the risk that John poses to her children. And then it calls forward to events from A Storm of Swords, where Ned, or rather where Rob and Catelyn are talking at the tomb of Christopher, uh, Christopher Mudd, the fourth, I believe. And which that Catelyn says that, yes, you can legitimize John, but legitimizing John makes him a danger to the children of her body, but and, and kind of frames that as being like, well, if the children of your own body, your own sons and daughters would be at risk from John if you legitimize him. So, not again, unsure if Martin had that in mind, that conversation in mind when he wrote this line, but I do think it is a bit of a callback to Catelyn too, and Martin probably utilized some of this in writing some of Catelyn Rob stories from the Storm of Swords. Great point. Again, it's Martin trying to work in the moral ambiguity by Ned having to think to himself, oh, is the sentiment Cersei is expressing, is that sentiment also in the heart of my beloved wife? Are we not right. so different, you and I, to borrow from every superhero movie ever? So, of course, another of the story's big revelations that is relevant to this chapter is the truth about the murder of John Aaron. And something I love coming back to and reread is how skillfully Martin makes you assume it was the Lannisters without right. ever actually confirming it so he can pull the rug out from underneath us at the end of Storm of Swords by revealing it was actually Lysa and Littlefinger. Like, the conversation in this scene moves so quickly away from the topic of John Aaron. Martin mentions it because it has to come up. There's no way Ned cannot bring this up. Right. But the conversation quickly moves along without Cersei ever actually confirming that she was involved in his death, which is so good because as a first-time reader, your mind just fills this in. You're already convinced at this point that the Lannisters killed John Aaron. All the information you've been given points to that. So the fact that Cersei doesn't confess isn't actually material to you in that moment. But as a rereader, it's like, ah, that's what Martin had to do. He couldn't have Cersei too confused about the question because that gives it away that it wasn't her. But nor can he have her confirm it. So he has to walk that line. He does such an elegant job. But Yeah, I was kind of like thinking like, yeah, exactly like you said, like the reader is kind of led to believe that Cersei is just being like, oh, do you know the truth? Kind of like kind of obfuscating sort of thing. But maybe she was actually really asking that, like, oh, you you know who killed John Aaron? I, I would love to know that, too. I, I, I'm a little <laughs> concerned about the safety of myself and my own children because we had nothing to do. Well, we did have a little bit to do with the death of John Aaron, but we don't know who poisoned him. And we would love to know that information, Ned. Thanks for bringing out me out here to the Godswood to talk about that. We really appreciate that because this kind of information sharing we're about to do together. It's so crucial to the running of a good realm. Teamwork makes the dream work, Ned. But that, yeah, that's a great way of thinking about it where – we assume Cersei's just using her wiles and obfuscating and being mysterious throughout that scene, but that might be a moment of just genuine confusion on her part. Right. 
where she's like, what? That's not what we're supposed to talk about. What are you talking about? And again, you can see Martin building that in so early. It's great. And then one final little note of potential groundwork here. There's that great description of Cersei when she talks about Robert whispering Lyanna's name to her when Martin describes it as her eyes burned green fire in the dark. Mm. And then when you get to A Feast for Crows and there's all this association of Cersei with wildfire and Eris, and even earlier than that with the Clash of Kings. So who knows how specifically Martin had Cersei's plot worked out at this point, but maybe he's already thinking of her in relation to Eris' relation to wildfire, especially since Eris does come up in this chapter. Oh, yeah, I think that's that's certainly in Martin's mind. I do think that when when George wrote started writing a song of ice and fire, I'm fairly certain he had the end states of these various characters in mind. Now maybe he didn't have the Valencar prophecy necessarily, kind of, and, and it does work organically. There is some. Uh, our our friend Eliana is a big uh, anti Valencar prophecy fan, but I, I like it for reasons that we'll talk about. You know, in about four years or so. But I, I do think that that eyes burn green and fire in the in the dark is definitely a reference tying Cersei to wildfire. We do know that wildfire is something that has been referenced in Game of Thrones and, of course, comes up in a big way in A Clash of Kings. And Martin doesn't put references to things in the books unintentionally or without any meaning or purpose behind it. I do think that it likely is symbolizing things that will be occurring in Cersei's future. Um, whether she actually cooks off wildfire, I think Emma and I both don't think that she'll be the one who actually does it, that she'll be prevented from cooking off the wildfire in King's Landing as Aegon and his forces take the city. Uh, perhaps she'll be uh, prevented by by, Cer- by Jamie or by Kyburn or someone else. Most likely it'll be Jamie, but we'll have to see. Yes, indeed. That ties back into our question from Sir Thomas earlier in the chapter. Yeah. So, shifting finally into our discussion portion. I think yes. There's really, really no other topic here. We, we thought we'd follow up our enlightening discussion with Stephen Atwell in the last Ned chapter with the question to end all questions. Is Eddard Stark just a dummy? with more honor than sense for doing what he does in this chapter? And I, I think our answer to that question is a very firm hell no. Hell no. Hell no. So despite what Varys says in Ned's final chapter, this act of mercy on, this po- on Ned's part is not what got Robert killed. At this point, Lancel and Tyrek have already been dispatched by Cersei with the fortified strong line and her instructions to use it. Joffrey's already back inside the city, so Cersei can use him to seize physical control of the throne. Mm-hmm. As Varys correctly says... Cersei couldn't have afforded to let Robert live much longer anyway. Stannis and Renly are accelerating their plans, and she needs control of King's Landing in order to deal with them. As such, Ned is not responsible for Robert's death, and if it weren't for Robert's death, this play might have worked. Yeah. It, it's, it is naive of him to expect not only Cersei and her kids, but also Lord Tywin to run for it. Tywin has all the resources of Casterly Rock, and he has an army in the field. Uh, if Ned genuinely expected Tywin to, to run for it, that is naive on his part. But he does prove prepared to back it up by force when Robert is removed from the board. He ultimately just gambles wrong on Littlefinger's loyalties. Exactly. Yeah. It, Tywin being taken out of the picture is a great fantasy on, on Ned's part. He's like, finally, we can get some justice for what Tywin has done his entire life of being a monster, evil, awful, shitty dude. Ned is just utilizing the information that he has in mind and that he knows in order to try and force Tywin out of the picture. Jamie and Cersei is a much more realistic possibility to get them out of the picture and to get them out soon. But again, all of this is not going to occur because Robert is a, a day or two away from dying from in, in a Game of Thrones. And it's just, yeah, it, it really, it's really hard because the, the whole premise behind the end game of a Game of Thrones is that Martin is pressing his thumb against the scale like we talked about earlier. 
and ensuring that Robert dies exactly when he dies and so that Ned can't carry out this plan of mercy. And it's just fucked up how many people think that Ned's offer of mercy to Cersei was the wrong thing to do. It's easy to succumb to presentism and assume that because Ned's approach fails, it was always going to fail and it was doomed from the start. And it distresses me to see the takeaway from Ned's storyline being that mercy is stupid, that evil will always triumph because good is dumb. I really don't think that's what Martin wants us to take away from this. The title of this week's episode, Save the Children, comes not only from Ned's thoughts, but also a Marvin Gaye song by that name. It's on the classic album, What's Going On, that (laughs) iconic, beautiful album that everybody loves, which was all about expressing heartache and confusion in the wake of Vietnam and the backlash to the civil rights movement and all the big social struggles going on in the late 60s and early 70s, but also expressing deep abiding love in that moment yeah in the midst of so much chaotic uncertainty the guiding light is to save the children you hold on to that even as all else crumbles around you mercy mercy made yeah that's what ned does here and that is not wrong what's wrong is failing to back it up because doing the right thing without a plan can easily make things worse for me the shining counterexample is davos and the storm of swords also a hand to a baratheon king (laughs) who not only smuggles Edric Storm away, not only saves the children, but he comes to Stannis with a better way to save the realm. He comes to Stannis with a plan for how Team Dragonstone can move forward without Edric Storm and do better. And in many ways, I think that plotline feels like a natural sequel to Ned's. But as Ned himself says, mercy is never a mistake. The mistake he makes here is political, not moral. It's not that he did the wrong thing. It's that he failed to back it up properly. Like you said, it's extremely distressing that so many people think the takeaway from that storyline from A Game of Thrones is that Ned was stupid and that's why he died. And that Ned should have been much more Machiavellian and should have much been much more of the type of person to be willing to endanger and likely get a bunch of kids killed. And that's not – again, I completely concur and agree with you that – is not the point that Martin is making here that Ned's mercy is wrong because it ends up not working itself out in the end. Again, like we're like we're saying here, if Robert is living one to two days longer, not just a week longer at that point from Edward 11, a day or two longer, then the plan might have worked out. But Ned being merciful to people, to his enemies, to the children of his enemies is not a bad thing. And something else that kind of like kind of gets me, there's another argument that's maybe not as prominent as the Ned is stupid and that's why he died argument, but that Ned is making all these decisions because he is uh, inflicted with, with PTSD. I do agree that Ned has a significant amount of post-traumatic stress disorder from his experiences in Robert's Rebellion, but especially as we see in this chapter from his experiences in seeing Rhaenys and Aegon and their bodies being laid before the Iron Throne in the Crimson Cloaks, their dead bodies, that is. And Ned has that line where he can't even think about what happened to Aegon, the boy, the boy. And we know that what ended up happening to Aegon is that his head was smashed in. And I mean, just because you got your head fucked with trauma, because Ned definitely got his head fucked with that trauma, doesn't mean that he was wrong to object to the same trauma being repeated again. It's such a bad misread to be like, well, Ned is making these bad decisions Based on PTSD, he's not making bad decisions based on PTSD. He's making the correct fucking decisions based on his PTSD. I'm not <laughs> wanting to see people suffer the same consequences and trauma again. Can you imagine 
Tommen and Marcella being laid in front of Robert Baratheon in Stark cloaks or whatever, whatever, were Stark banners or something like that? Can you imagine Sansa and Arya witnessing that? What Ned is trying to do here is to ensure that the realm of Westeros doesn't have to experience the same trauma that he experienced. And that's a good thing. It's moral. It's noble. It's honorable. And it's the right thing. It's such the right thing. And I, I feel for Ned. I, I really feel for Ned. Being a, a veteran and seeing people die in war by, by myself, it, that stuff stays with you. And it influences me and how I think about foreign and public policy as an American and as a world citizen, if you want to call it that, about what the consequences of that that sort of stuff is. It's not just this clean, easy thing where people will die off screen and then you, you can watch the war on CNN. It's that mm-hmm. the people, actual people suffer. And yes, there are, in my opinion, there are certain wars and conflicts that are morally justified. And I, like Em and I both talked about, Robert's Rebellion was absolutely morally justified. But at the same time, you see evil, evil actions occurring and innocents dying at the behest of a just war, much as we see in our real world history. The end of Robert's Rebellion was the Tower of Joy. That's the last final action in Robert's Rebellion. And it's a moment that is entirely trauma-based in Ned watching his sister die. But the moment before that was Ned seeing the bodies of two children being laid before Robert Baratheon. And him seeing that and him witnessing that horror influences him and influences his outlook on things in the current world. Yeah, as I was saying earlier, it's not that Ned's cause is unjust. That's not what he's worried about. That's a given that he's uncovered an important reality that ought to be dealt with. What he's dwelling on are the consequences of acting on that justified impulse. Same as with Robert's Rebellion was justified but still led to horror and innocence being killed. That's what makes it such a, a powerful moral dilemma. And as you were saying, Ned is certainly going through traumatic reliving and, you know, reassociation we see that very strongly at the opening of his next chapter in which he has this nightmare of Lyanna weeping blood. Mm. And he sees the King's Guard outside Robert's deathbed and compares them to the ones at the Tower of Joy. You know, this, it's not just influencing him in terms of morality. It's, it's haunting his every thought and his instincts and his waking decisions. But that doesn't mean we should, as you, I think you make a great point, that doesn't mean we should just dismiss out of hand Ned's actions here. Like there are a spectrum of reactions to traumatic events. There are a spectrum right. of reactions to the losses of Robert's Rebellion. We see John Connington's takeaway from Robert's Rebellion being he needed to be more brutal. He needed to be more right. Tywin-esque. He needed to be willing to kill children. And I, I think he will be when it comes to his own young cousins in the Winds of Winter, right. unfortunately. The young griffins, as, yeah. as they're called. And that's just a very different reaction from Ned. Ned and John Connington have a lot of interesting parallels in, mm-hmm. in many ways, as we'll get into 20 years down the line when we get to <laughs> Dance with Dragons. But they're also a very important contrast, and this is one of them. So uh, I think Ned needs to – not that we should be – pretend that the PTSD isn't in making an impact, but I think you, you make a great kind of uh, distinction that we should point that out and realize the impact that's having, but not dismiss Ned's decision-making or moral stand on that basis. Yeah, absolutely agree. I think it's a great way to close this out. So thank you everyone for listening and appreciate it. I'm sure that you guys can probably notice that I have a bit of a, of a chest cold this week. So I appreciate you all listening to me wheezing and coughing my way through this this chapter so thanks for listening and uh yeah it's been a lot of fun through this chapter yep it was as we say it's one of the most important significant chapters in the series and really a game of thrones only gets better and better from here we're oh, really yeah. really hitting the book stride at this point i think mm-hmm.
So, as always, guys, rate and review us on iTunes and Google Play. Uh, send us your thoughts at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com. Hit us up on Twitter at notacastasoiaf. Check out our Patreon if you have not at patreon.com forward slash notacastasoiaf where you can get early episodes, bonus episodes, access to show notes, etc. More personally speaking, you can find me at Port Quentin at Twitter or on portquentin.tumblr.com. And you can find me at Brennan B. Fish on Twitter, Brennan B. Fish on Reddit, and my website is Wars and Politics, ViceandFire.wordpress.com. So, join us next time as Danny devours a heart and loses a brother in a Game of Thrones Daenerys 5, where we'll be joined again by a mystical Luciferian type of person, otherwise known as Lucifer Means Lightbringer. So he's going to be here to talk all about all of the symbolism, the astronomy, the mythical astronomy that is, all the awesome stuff that he brings to the floor. I'm really excited about doing that episode with, uh, with David Beers, a.k.a. LML. Yes, indeed. This is a chapter where we get to see one of the first prophecies of A Song of Ice and Fire, the prophecy of the stallion will mount the world. And also there's just some really strong imagery and themes in that chapter that resonate across the series. So we're definitely happy to have LML on to help us decode that. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. So, thanks everyone for listening, and we will see you guys next time. Take care, everybody.